You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with our good friend Ken McLeod, author of a number of highly regarded books about the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, including Reflections on Silver River, An Arrow to the Heart, and his most recent book, Trackless Path. Ken is working on another book about the Tibetan Vajrayana path and is founder of Unfettered Mind, an organization featuring an online Dharma teaching repository and resource. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Music on this show is from a CD called Oboe Concertos by Johann Gottlieb and or Karl Heinrich Graun, performed by Xenia Loeffler and the Batzdorfer Hofkapelle. This is the Presto Movement from the Sinfonia in G Major by Johann Baptist Georg Neruda, previously attributed to the Ground Brothers. This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Delightful to be here. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with our good friend Ken McLeod. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, he began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher center model and the minister church model and developed a consultant client model. Ken is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. The organization he founded and continues to guide, Unfettered Mind, offers a rich set of teachings distilled from Ken's long teaching career. It can be found at unfetteredmind.org. Ken McLeod, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Glad to be here again. 
Well, we're glad to have you, and um, the um, inspiration for my inviting you today um, was a piece that um, you shared on Facebook and I, I, um, through other um, uh, media as well. Uh, but um, the reason that, that I wanted to talk about that piece is because I've, as you know, and I, I've we actually, our guest last week, Roger Jackson, who uh, wrote a book about Mahamudra, an enormous uh, and well-written tome about Mahamudra, um, I, I, I made the point to him that I've long puzzled over uh, understanding, sort of grokking, to use uh, Robert Heinlein's term, uh, grokking the Tibetan Vajrayana um, lineage and practice. And... Um, this piece that I read by you was remarkable in opening up some aspects of that practice that I really hadn't um, fully uh, appreciated before. So um, I also happen to know, because you've, you've told us, um, or you told me when I uh, called to invite you, uh, that this is intended, perhaps with modifications, I don't know, to go into um, the book you're writing, on uh, Vajrayana practice. So, um, so I want to get into into this um, piece. Now, um, there's a lot to look at. It's a fairly long. I actually printed out the whole thing so I can refer to it um, uh, piece by piece, as it were. But I'm, I'm glad I read it over this morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, believe me, I, I, I get that uh, once it's once it's uh, off the uh, the keypad, uh, remembering it could be difficult. But um, it it starts off um, with your recounting a uh, an incident um, in I believe in 1986 where you were translating for your teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, at a talk at, uh, um, near Los Angeles, in the mountains outside Los Angeles. And um, there were 100 people there, roughly, and um, a couple days into the retreat, as um, uh, Rinpoche um, opened that morning teaching, he said, quote, this is the quote that, that you have in the piece, when Ken came to Los Angeles, he was clever. He taught meditation on the breath. Many people liked this kind of meditation. It made them feel better. And the result of Ken's way of teaching is that you are here in this retreat here today. So I think Ken was very clever, and he did a good job. Unquote. Then after a pause, Kala Rinpoche continued, maybe he was clever, maybe not. Then he goes on, uh, uh, or you, you go on to say, a there was a ripple of nervous laughter spreading through the hall. People glanced at you, Ken, um, with a quizzical look on their faces, because obviously this isn't what they were expecting. And uh, Rinpoche went on um, uh, to say, quote, maybe he was just afraid. Maybe he was afraid to tell people the truth, afraid of what would happen if he told them the truth afraid that they might run away, unquote. Of course, that brought great silence to the hall. <laughs> that's not, that's not how you feel. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm making yeah. an emendation here. Well, people, people didn't know what was happening, so some people were laughing because it was funny. Yeah, I was okay. translating this, and other okay. people were like, 
what the hell's going on? <laughs> right, because it uh, defied their expectations, obviously. Uh, hence the laughter and the uh, puzzlement or, yeah. or more. But then the room did go very quiet because they like, where's he going? <laughs> <laughs> right. So... Um, so then he, uh, Kala Rinpoche, said, I'm not, I'm not afraid to tell you the truth, or words to that effect. Yes. And then, as you write, he then launched into an exposition of the sufferings of the six, ki- six kinds of beings, from the des- denizens of the hot and cold hells to the gods in the form and formless realms and everything in between, immediately followed by another exposition of how the workings of karma stack the deck against any chance of happiness and endless cycles of birth and death, let alone freedom. So this obviously wasn't what they were what they'd signed up for, probably. Yes, but Rinpoche knew how to get everybody's attention. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, uh, pretty and pretty and pretty skillfully. So um, later in the piece, you you um, you offer. This is the first thing, the first point I want to bring up. Later in the piece, you then, um, the, your your written piece, I should say, um, you describe um, uh, something called creation phase practice, and then go on to talk about um, basically a practice as I understand it, and I'd like you to uh, speak speak about this where you are imagining yourself in a place where you're receptive to certain um, visualizations or are, are um, acting and feeling in the place, feeling in the place of a, of a deity or, or a particular um, non-human being. And... Um, that part of the piece, the con- more or less the conclusion, um, was, in addition to that uh, very striking introduction, is really uh, an interesting um, evocation of um, an aspect of the Tibetan uh, Vajrayana practice that I haven't really been f- entirely familiar with. So uh, without me going through it, why don't, why don't I let you talk about um, what, what it is um, that well, you were getting to, get, trying to get at, and I'll see if, I, if, if it comport, uh, is, uh, agrees with my own understanding that I picked up from the piece. Oh dear. Mind reading time. <laughs> Well, well, no, 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 no judgment. I'm just, I'm curious because I want to know. Yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm trying to figure out where you are in it. Mm-hmm. So, okay, sure. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, a, a couple of things I want to um, differentiate. Um, the piece about uh, Rinpoche uh, mildly castigating me for not talking about the six realms and karma. Mm-hmm. Uh, was, uh, or, or not scaring the hell out of people early on. Well, uh, I was talking with my ex-wife, and, uh, and uh, when Rinpoche was in the early days in Vancouver back in the 70s one time, we were all crowded into this house, into the living room of this house that we'd rented for the center, and Rinpoche was giving a teaching on the uh, on the six realms, and one person was so... Uh, 
untaken with the teachings that mm -hmm. he couldn't. He, the room was so crowded he couldn't walk out the door, so he climbed out the window. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he he did run away. <laughs> Self defenestration. <laughs> well, that's a good way of putting it. Um, but the. The cosmology I described there is, is a cosmology that is present in India. It's actually present through all of the t uh, Asian cultures, uh, even though it's not talked much about in the modern era. And um, it was a cosmology that Tibet uh, inherited when they uh, brought Buddhism uh, to their country, or Buddhism came to their country. And it fit very well with where uh, Tibet was uh, in evolution as a society and as a culture at that point. Uh, and my reason for talking about the six realms is that I'm in my uh, newsletters for the next few months, I'm going to be talking about a series of meditations that I've developed uh, to deal with the six uh, with the six realms or the six kinds of beings. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a more accurate translation, actually, which are really subjective descriptions of our uh, reactive emotions or emotional reactions, pride, jealousy, uh, envy, uh, anger, greed, and so forth, uh, with a view to coming to a very, a, a very different relationship with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, and that, that, that kind of practice permeates all of Tibetan Buddhism. It's, uh, part in both Mahayana and the Vajrayana. Now, what you're referring to in the latter part of this piece, uh, what I was trying to do there is to give people the sense that in order to do these practices, you actually have to put yourself into the worlds that the practices are describing. And most people, when they do practice of these kinds, and actually I've had this discussion with Zen teachers uh, also, most people stay in their heads, mm -hmm. and they try to work out the practice on an explicitly cognitive level or on a subtly cognitive level. Mm -hmm. But they never really get out of their heads, and they don't feel the bite of the practice in their body, so to speak. I had a very... Uh, interesting experience in a retreat one time a person that I knew not well but I'd known that he'd come to a number of retreats his wife was a, a very close student of mine but he came in for an interview at this retreat and uh, started the interview by reading an excerpt from um, Long Chempa who's one of the great Nyingma lamas of the uh, Tibetan tradition and uh, this uh, the short piece was about how weary the mind is from wandering in samsara, wandering from realm to realm and just being subjected to one form of suffering after another. And so when he finished, I said, okay, I want you to read that piece again. But wherever it says mind, I want you to say body. And he started to read the piece, and he didn't get into more than three or four lines before he was in tears. Hmm. Because by putting the word body in it, he actually started to feel what the piece was describing. But as long as he was talking about mind, it could stay at a cognitive level. And he could relate to it and love it, etc. like that, but he didn't actually feel it. And this aspect of practice where you actually feel you know, what's going on mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> is something that... Uh, 
it's just not engaged a lot. Uh, another time I was teaching in Minnesota, a Zen center there had, uh, in Minneapolis, uh, had asked me to come, and I was teaching four immeasurables, and it was, it was just a weekend program, and I went, and halfway through the morning I said, well, what's going on? I, I, I couldn't figure out, because the way that people were responding to the meditations I was giving just was not the way that people usually respond to the meditations. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized sometime in the middle of the afternoon that nobody at that center was practicing in their body. Hmm. They were all in their heads. And uh, and this is what I mean about a subtly cognitive approach. Uh, and so I spent the rest of the weekend trying to get them in their bodies. Uh, because if you don't engage, if the body isn't engaged in practice, um, it it actually doesn't penetrate very far. So just just to help someone who's listening who might um, not be so clear about this distinction. Uh, oh, I've got a wonderful story for you. Oh, good, because I I wanted to just get a flavor for uh, uh, what it means to be you know practicing in your head without the body, and then how oh, that might shift. Yeah, a, a couple of things. First. We have the idea, because of the underlying culture, we are a certain form of monotheism, what I call absolute monotheism, in which there's one god against which all other gods are false. Uh, Then that creates a mind-body split, a very deep mind-body split in the culture. And so we have have this idea, and you see this idea in science fiction all the time, of the possibility of the mind existing without the body. That idea is completely unknown in Asian cultures. You can't have a, a mind without the body, because mind and body are not separate. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and now, the, uh, this shows up in some very amusing ways. One time, a Westerner went to Kanjur Rinpoche, who is a very highly regarded lama in Darjeeling. He died many, many years ago. Uh, and uh, was going on and on about... Uh, how the mind was here, pointing to his head. And Kanjur Rinpoche said, no, the mind's here, pointing to his heart. And the Westerner was just quite adamant about this. So eventually Kanjur Rinpoche said, come here. And uh, the Westerner came over, and then uh, Kanjur Rinpoche, with no warning whatsoever, punched him quite hard in the stomach. Just <laughs> wham. And, and the person doubled over in pain. He said, now where's your mind? <laughs> <laughs> so, that does that illustrate the point? Yeah, that that that, that helps. <laughs> so you went around punching people at the <laughs> no, retreat. No, 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 no. I, 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 I was often tempted to, but that's, uh, <laughs> such measures are proscribed in our society these days. It is. It is. It is um, true. Well, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So when. Uh, what I, I would do when I was teaching was was figure out ways to get people uh, into their bodies. Well, let me give you one other example, which I, I really uh, stunned me. In preparing for the three-year retreat, uh, we had to learn the musical instruments that t- Tibetans play in their ceremonies. Hmm. So uh, the long... Uh, 
horn called a radung, but also a, a, a primitive sham or oboe-like instrument called a jaling. Mm. And uh, so we'd learned what, we'd learned how to do the circular breathing. So you, you, and everything was just a little difficult. But then we, uh, we'd, we, but time was pressing, and we'd learned one tune. Well, I didn't want to play one tune for three years. So I asked one of the people, uh, lamas who were helping us learn all this stuff, to if he could teach me another tune. So he went off and he taught it to me. And then, when I pretty well got it, he uh, said, now give me your arm. I went, okay. So I held out my arm. And he uh, put his uh, fingers on the arm as if it was the, the, the instrument itself. Hmm. And then played the tune on my arm. Hmm. So what he was doing was putting the tune into my body. Hmm. And that that made an impression on me. I went, oh, okay. Uh, because I, I was coming from a background in mathematics. How often do you talk about the body in mathematics? Ring theory and you know abstract algebras and Banach spaces and all that kind of stuff. Differentiable manifolds. Familiar to you, Stuart? Oh, it sounds beautiful. <laughs> oh, I think I could find a manifold in your body, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but would it be differentiable? <laughs> <laughs> maybe not. Best on last years go on. <laughs> Diffeomorphisms, you know, all kinds of things. It's just so abstract. It's yes. ridiculous. And that, that's not even getting into cohomology theory, and <coughs> et cetera. In any event, uh, so I would often make up exercises and retreats in which... Uh, these would be usually paired exercises in which one person would play the mind trying to meditate and the other person would play some aspect of the mind that disrupts meditation. Mm. But they were actually acting this out in the interaction. Mm. And that way they had the physical experience uh, of this. And then when they sit down to meditate, they, they had that experience in their body. And this is actually very, very successful. Uh, and so, and I... And then there's another time I was teaching in, in, in L.A., this is just shortly before I left L.A., one woman asked, how do you work with emotions? And everybody works with it. When anybody asks that question, everybody wants to work with anger, and I just get so tired of working with anger. So I said, we're going to do something different. We're going to work with joy. And uh, and I said, do you ever feel experience joy? Yeah. So, so call up experience where you feel joy. And so she called one up, and, and I, could, I, I, I watched her sitting there. And it was very clear that she was feeling joy from here to here, not in her body. In other so, words, from the from the chin to the top chin, of the forehead. Chin to the forehead. Yeah, it, it, it stopped at the neck. Right. And so I gave her uh, uh, some uh, guidance about how to take joy deeper into the body, and she was like, "Wow," <laughs> <laughs> because you, people spend so much of our, we spend so much of our time thinking in our culture and we, we, we forget to feel things in our body uh, in various disciplines you, you get away from that but, uh, but by and large people do this and they bring this into their meditation so uh, you know you, you take uh, the, the sequence of meditations I'm going to be putting out in my newsletter is about the six realms and, and in order to change your relationship with these reactive emotions like anger or pride it is essential 
that you actually feel the way anger operates in your body, the way pride operates in your body, the way jealousy operates in your body, the way fear operates in your body. And it's a very, very close relationship. Uh, Shinzen Young, whom you know, probably know of, is mm-hmm. a very good teacher. He says that an emotion is the combination of a cognitive element and a physical element, and the feeling comes from the interaction between those two. And I think that's actually a pretty good way of it. Mm-hmm. But if you aren't actually with the physical element, you're not in the emotion. And so that's that's the first piece. Now, transfer that to another set of practices, and this is the one you are inquiring about, uh, the creation phase. Now, in Tibetan Buddhism, we have Mahayana and Vajrayana. Vajrayana is a special form of Mahayana, basically, and there are a lot of practices, hundreds of practices within Vajrayana. And um, there are three principal types of practices. We could say uh, guru practices or guru yoga, deity practices or yidam practices. Yidam is a Tibetan word for deity. And protectors, which another uh, form of practice. And, and then when you go to deity practices, uh, then you have these two different uh, aspects of deity meditation. One is creation phase in which you're creating the experience of the deity. And completion phase where you're completing that experience by dissolving it into emptiness. And uh, and I can go into more detail than that if you wish. (coughs) Well, creating a creation phase a lot of Westerners struggle with. Not all Westerners uh, because it involves visualization. You know, and uh, and most of us don't have much practice in visualization or much facility. There are a few, and I've met a number of people who visualize extremely easily. But and I say it involves visualization, but visualization is the word that has been used to translate a certain Tibetan word, and it's maybe okay, but it really, again, it puts the emphasis on the mental aspect. Mm. Because the mental screen, as it were. Yeah, and, and so, and I try to get away from it using the word imagine because that has a more complete aspect, but mm. it's still. But really, uh, these practices are derived from uh, sorcery cults in ancient India, where that's where they were f- first developed. Now, when you're doing sorcery or doing magic, you don't imagine that you are this force or power. You assume you are this force of power. You are the force and power. Otherwise, the magic you, you, you don't you are you can't put the energy into it. Well, it's the same thing with deity practice. You have to be the deity. Right. And uh, now the particular meditation that I described very briefly in this uh, newsletter uh, was in this posting on Facebook is uh, the white manjushri. And uh, I, I, one can start off by saying, imagine that you are sitting on an island in a large lake uh, uh, with elephants roaming around the edges. But it's different when you let yourself be that. There, there, there's another element of engagement or level of engagement. And that's what's crucial in, in this practice. And so... For during your meditation period, you are this deity whose body is basically made of light, 
and you're sitting in this beautiful small island like a grassy knoll in a certain sense and very large lake and around the periphery of the lake you hear and occasionally see these eight elephants roaming around but you're there in the middle of the lake and it does and and the elephants roaming around they don't have any effect on you you know they're there so and here you are utterly at peace utterly awake utterly present and being that to the extent that you can be that that is what creation phase practice is about to do that you can you have a form uh, which is a you know for a body of light clothed in silk and jewelry uh, you but the, but the key thing is to feel that this is what you are and and then as you spend time being that it changes in some kind of very deep way our relationship with our uh, other processes that go on in our minds and our uh, in our lives hmm. so i'm i'm curious with this the way you describe it um someone listening might say well that that sounds like uh, guided meditation or something along those lines and I, I and i don't want to dismiss that out of hand and at the same time i feel like you're getting at something that's deeper because this sense of this identity with and this being with and that being sort of penetrating the body uh seems like a uh something deeper than what i normally um I get from uh, uh, guided meditations as they're, they as they penetrate the popular culture now. Yeah. Well, one way to help people is through a guided meditation, and I've done that many times, not with quite Manjushri so much, but with you know, Avalokiteshvara, the embodiment of awakened compassion, and uh, talking them through each stage of the meditation. And that can be very helpful. Uh, because then they, they don't have to be remembering it; they can just sit and let it happen in them. And that—that—that's so. That's a method of basically teaching this but, form of meditation. But, but uh, let's move to the context of Avalokiteshvara for a minute. This, the embodiment of awakened compassion. Just right now, as we sit here in this room, feel the difference between saying, I'm imagined that I am the embodiment of awakened compassion, and I am the embodiment of awakened compassion. What happens in your body when I make those two statements? Rob? Well, um, I feel an, as if electricity or energy uh, distributed through, the, through my limbs, for one thing. When I say it, you are. Yeah. 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 And that is what's important. Right. That's the difference between imagining and visualizing and, and yeah. being. Well, uh, well th then let me let, let me, um, and I want to bring you you in, Stuart, not as an interlocutor, but as uh, describe describing your experience because um, Stuart Stuart is engaged at the moment, you know, for however many weeks it it has been and will continue to be in a uh, a, a Western Hermetic. Visualization practice is that a fair? Yeah, it's, description? A, it's a visualization practice. It's a. It's a. I mean, there are also physical components too. Right. But um, it's uh, an alchemical practice. So, so there's there's work with 
distinct uh, elements uh, as they are reflected in the um, Kabbalistic system. Okay, so uh, so um, what what I'm and and I think this comes out of your at least in part your exposure to R.J. Stewart's uh, guided visualiz guided meditation visualization practices, uh, which I have pr uh, done mm -hmm. myself. So I guess I'm, I'm I'm trying to locate what you know the specificity of what you're describing, Ken, with the sort of thing that I have a little less experience with than Stuart does. Stuart has a has, has been more assiduous about about uh, <laughs> uh, doing these doing these practices than I, more than a little, uh, and um, and so I want to I, I I guess I want to get some kind of sense of comparing what those are what those feel like. Well, I'll I'll I'll, I'll add a couple of things because the the elements of a. Um, a magical practice or uh, a, some ritual form could be like uh, there are some, and this this what I'm doing is a little more. I wouldn't call it abstracted in a mental sense, but it's less it, it's less about a deity figure. Um, but uh, there are deity practices where one does imagine and goes through very elaborate sort of uh, spaces and interactions with a deity. There are some, and like, and, and I'm not as familiar with this myself, in uh, uh, theurgy where one becomes the deity, and it's very, it sounds very similar. Uh, yes. Uh, um, and, and that's something that our uh, previous guest, frequent previous guest Sam Webster, has spoken about. Yeah, and he, he's quite a, quite a practitioner of that. The, I think the thing that I wanted to say in this context that. Um, Again, is a distinction I found against you know with guided meditation versus uh, the, the kind of practice that you're describing is that there's an element that's uh, reminiscent of uh, learning to play a musical instrument or learning to play a song in that practice actually deepens the engagement with the the exercise in my experience because. There's you mean, a lot you of, mean repeatedly engaging with it? Yeah, repeatedly engaging with it, but not repeatedly engaging with it like by rote, uh, but it, repeatedly engaging in it in the same way that I repeatedly engage in playing a piece of music where mm -hmm. every time I'm pushing to become the music more and more uh, and uh, to attain to a mood and a place where uh, something beyond me flows through me and I find with these kinds of practices that that's, that's important and one of the key factors that comes up in this particular series I'm doing is allowing you know which means that you're not you are not doing in a sense you're allowing something to happen you're not you're not the agent and that your your job is really to become as empty a vessel as possible for a, a happening to move through you I think uh what you're saying is very important um, and uh, addresses a number of uh, misconceptions and uh, problems that a lot of Westerners uh, experience when they try to do these practices. Uh, first, the analogy with music is one that I've often used myself. I think it's a very, very good analogy. It's, it's, you know, you work, you, you learn you do scales, you do breathing exercises and things like that, and it makes other things possible. Uh, 
And so there's a, a lot of, in this kind of meditation practice, there are a lot of basic skills to be developed. But they aren't really broken out as basic skills. Uh, and so, some teachers probably did, but frequently it's, it's, it's like you're being given... Um, Mozart's clarinet concerto, and mm-hmm. off you go. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that that can be a bit frustrating because you don't haven't built up the basic skills to be able to play that, uh, even even technically, let alone with all the uh, dynamics and everything like that. The uh, second thing that you said, which I think is very relevant here, is that uh, you talk about. Uh, you know, you're not in control. You're you're not doing it. And uh, I've thought of various words uh, or phrases in in English for this. Uh, one that I find uh, somewhat helpful is uh, giving yourself to the deity. Hmm. Uh, but an, another one is really uh, from the shamanic tradition, and but uh, but is relevant here is letting the spirit of the deity take over in you. You know, and it seems to be you're talking about the same kind of thing. Now, that's a very scary thing to do. It is. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and one of the uh, aspects of Western society is that we are so steeped in a culture of control that you know mm. and this comes right out of our scientific background where. We're, we're able to do this, we're able to do this, we're able to do this, we can direct our attention this way, and we are in control of the whole process. Well, it's not just the scientific. Uh, uh, God, in the Bible, in oh. Genesis, gives us dominion over the plants and the animals, etc. Okay, yeah. But uh, in any event, yeah, I still think it's more a problem in the modern era. Right? Oh, I, I, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. And... Uh, the, the the notion of letting yourself be awakened compassion, say. Mm-hmm. Well, if you actually let that soak in, I'm awakened compassion, the next thing you know is that parts of you are rebelling against this. Mm-hmm. saying, I don't want that. I don't want to be that. That's that's going to be too much work. Or, you know, that's not the way I want to. And so... Now you have to relate to those parts of you that don't actually don't want to participate in the practice, mm-hmm. and that's part of the uh, part of the work of the practice is figuring out a way to relate to those parts. If you're the embodiment of awakened compassion, how do you relate to the parts of you that doesn't want to be awakened compassion? This has got to be key f- for me, for me at least, oh. because uh, um, um, as soon as I started working with my teacher. You know, I was slapped again and again and again and again and again with precisely all the parts of me that um, had um, not not just reservations, <laughs> but but a real agenda uh, oh, to, yes. to go someplace else and or do other to, or, things. Or to sabotage what you were trying to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. And so this this is the work of practice. And if people don't take it into their bodies or don't let that... that feeling enter them then they never go to that edge mm-hmm. where they're working with that so mm-hmm. i think i think your description is is, is right on well let me let me let me ask a, uh, a little bit more about some of the language you, you used in this uh, uh written written article so you say um 
uh, about this creation phase practice that you were just referring to, that there are three three main components, clarity, um, recollection, and divine pride. And you, you write, clarity is the ability to hold the image clearly in your mind. Recollection is the ability to know what each aspect of the image represents. That's the one that kind of stopped me, but let me finish the third one. Divine pride is the ability to hold the sense of being the deity, or to put it in different words, to let the spirit of the deity take you over, take over you, which is what you've just referred to. But so, can you tell me more about this recollection about each aspect of the uh, what each aspect of the image? How does that when you're when I mean in the mind it's easy enough you can run through a little list right? But we're you're talking about something that's deeper than the mind. Well, uh, my feeling about this, and this comes from my reading and also teaching I've received, is that uh, my own teacher, for instance, and his previous incarnation of whom I've read some of his works, one one of the works dealing with this explicitly. Mm -hmm. Uh, They both say trying to do all of that recollection tends to keep your mind busy. I used to in the cognitive. Mm -hmm. So they they say all you need to remember is that as as the deity, your body is like the body of a rainbow. Okay. And so that's that you you don't have a solid corporal body. You have a body, but it is a body of light. It's it's brilliant. It's clear. It has a definite form, a definite shape, but it doesn't have a substance to it. And uh, and that's all you need. And that way you get used to in in uh, keeping that idea in your in your mind as you do these practices. You. Uh, Get you, you are uh, taking in and letting the idea of form and emptiness be imprinted deeply, deeply into your... Yeah. That's really interesting because uh, 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 that metaphor intrigues me because um, a body uh, that is a rainbow or like a rainbow, because a rainbow you can never touch... And yet, it does have a shape, which which changes with your pers- with with where you move with respect to the to the rainbow. Well, you can think of a hologram too. Mm-hmm. Okay. You see, in uh, fact, a hologram is a great image uh, or a great mm-hmm. uh, 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 metaphor. And you have this in the uh, Diamond Sutra, like a, a, an echo, a flash of lightning, a mirage. Mm. Rainbow, and so I can't remember all. There's there's nine metaphors used for this, mm-hmm. and uh, but the idea is, I think we need to take a big step back at this point, okay? Uh, because uh, one of the problems, and I think we've discussed this on other shows before, but I think we need to visit it again here. Uh, philosophically speaking. Mystical practice, uh, particularly in the Buddhist tradition, is not particularly interested in ontology and how things exist or how things are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're interested in how you experience things. And, uh, and part of the reason for that is whenever you try to ascertain or determine how things are, you end up in a mess. 
I mean, even in the physical sciences, you end up in a mess. You keep looking and splitting the atom. You end down with this kind of bubbly thing at 10 to the minus 35 centimeters of space-time. And it's not at all clear what's going on. It's not at all clear we'll ever be able to know what's going on because mm -hmm. of the limitations of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and things like that. So, but truth in a ontological thing is verifiable evidence. Okay. Okay. Repeatable evidence and so forth. I'm glossing over a lot of things, but I think you can take my point. In the spiritual and the mystical realm, and uh, more in the experiential realm, what is true has a very different meaning. It's what rings true. What resonates. Yeah, what resonates. And uh, resonates so deeply that it changes your life. You know, and, and, and it changes your relationship with your body, changes your relationship with your feelings, it changes your relationship with how you perceive the world. It, mm -hmm. it can change everything. Is this verifiable? Is it reproducible? No, not really. Because it's a, it's a very... Not in, not in the way that scientists are, not, not in conceive the themselves yeah. Uh, yeah. to be doing. And one of the great assumptions that is made is that that form of truth is the same for everybody, but I don't think that is the case anymore. Hmm. Uh, uh, the great assumptions made by... Mystics. That that, tr that form of truth is the same for everybody. Yeah, and they talk about the, the uh, non-duality. Right. It's the same. I just want to be clear what, yeah. what you're saying, so, but then are you saying that you don't think that's true now? I don't think that's true, because... But that that almost uh, starts to uh, uh, get to the ontological, though. Well, that's precisely my point. Because when, I mean, take a poem or a piece of music that just rang uh, true to you. Mm -hmm. and, and, like, not to be overly dramatic, but this happens sometimes. They change your life. Mm hmm you know, and it may not have been a piece of music. It may have been a view in nature. It may have been a piece of art. Uh, Rilke talks about that in a sonnet uh, when he uh, is in the Louvre in uh, Paris in the early uh, 1900s, I guess, and he comes across this uh, Greek uh, sculpture of probably Apollo, and the image of the torso so resonates with him that he writes his poem the end of the last line of which is you must change your life mm -hmm. and uh, but this is not this is not what true means in the scientific material sense at all but when but when you have that kind of experience and it can be a satori experience in zen or an awakening experience or a uh, uh, visitation of grace uh, from God in, in, in the Christian context or, you know, whatever the appropriate thing is in the Jewish context and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, it feels so true mm -hmm. that you immediately give it an ontological status. This is what is true. That's where the ontology creeps mm -hmm. in. And and people build whole religions out of this, as, right. we, mm -hmm. as we well know. And they make the assumption, and, and what they, they want, they come from the best of places. Here is something that has changed their life, changed their whole relationship with life, freed them from all, all kinds of 
confusion and uh, turmoil, uh, a way of life which they can come back to and be at peace in even the most difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. So it is incredibly valuable, and they want other people to have uh, to have the same thing. So they teach other people how to have their experience. Yes. Okay. Uh, because that is the one true experience, and we see this cropping up in religions. Now, we even have the, we, this comes up in Buddhism all the time. And uh, the translation of Buddha's last words is usually rendered something like, I have shown you the way, work out your freedom with diligence. I think it should be translated differently. And that is, I have shown you a way. Work out your own, right? Because, and uh, this comes partially from my from teaching people. I would look for experience for them when they had certain experiences. I would look. I I became less and less concerned what the content of the experience was, Mm -hmm. and more what the effect of the experience was on them, Mm -hmm. and that that. Well, isn't it? But isn't one one aspect of that effect going to be if it actually changes people's lives in a profound way? Um, isn't it? Isn't one aspect of that experience likely to be a, a grad? Uh, I'm speaking for myself here. Is a gradual unfolding of the realization that everyone has their own has to do that has to do it their own way has to find. That um, something. Oh, I wish. <laughs> really? Oh yes. I mean, you you had a very good teacher, and uh, one of the things that impresses me about both of you is how extraordinarily open you are, mm-hmm. and you take in a lot of things and yeah. w- without losing your own confidence and faith mm-hmm. in your in your own mm-hmm. in the tradition of your own training. Mm-hmm. This, as far as I'm concerned, is relatively rare. Well, I don't. I don't yeah. dispute that. I mean, I, actually, that that uh, came up even when we were talking with uh, uh, our guest last week, and uh, he, he, you know, he was tracing the Golug tradition's yeah. uh, relationship with Mahamudra, and it's like there's just oscillations in that tradition of people who are really inclusive, and and that's inclusive, uh, you know, modular within the Tibetan tradition writ large, and <laughs> uh, you know, but even even they, some of them were so inclusive that they would include other Buddhists outside of the Tibetan tradition. Yeah. But then you get down to people who were, you know, our way is the right way and the only way, and other, everyone else is misguided. Yes, and which is very understandable when you have such a powerful experience, but. Uh, I think it, it, it is just what you said, Rob, that uh, more and more it is about, okay, here's here's how I came across something which, or this is what happened to me, mm-hmm. and I can tell you the things I did in my life so that that actually came about. I can't say I made it happen. Uh, but... And, and so that maybe that's helpful to you, but you're going to have to find your own way. And well, as a teacher, I can help you do that to the best of my ability. Right. But uh, most people, I, I mean, my first step into this was when I moved away from translating the way mm. to a way, the okay. power of the indefinite the, pronoun. I'm curious, uh, does, does Tibetan have a definite and indefinite article? 
Tibetan doesn't actually have an yeah, article. So, so that, I mean, that seems to me, that, I don't yeah. think Sanskrit does either. And yeah. uh, so the, the, these distinctions are actually impositions from uh, uh, well, other language sets, too. Well, but then it, it, it's an imposition in a sense that requires a choice be made. And I think Ken's point is there's been a uh, unreflective uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. choice I mean, made. the first book I published uh, was... Uh, titled The Great Path of Awakening. Mm -hmm. If I were to republish it today, I would absolutely insist that it be titled A Great Path of Awakening. Uh, you see this, you referred to my most recent book, uh, A Trackless Path. It's surprising the number of people who want to refer to that book as the trackless I'm path. I'm sure. I'm but if sure it is the it. trackless path, then obviously it isn't a trackless path anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but that's like a Zen koan. Come on, Ken. <laughs> no, it's not. Well, Lewis Carroll will probably play with it. <laughs> that's, that's very funny. Yeah. I said, no, I can't be the trackless path, because then it wouldn't be trackless. <laughs> yeah, I, um, it is. Uh, what, what we're talking about is, I mean, it, it's true of so many traditions and uh, even our own experience. Yeah. One, one of the... We were having a conversation this morning with um, uh, a group we correspond with over Zoom every week, and uh, we were talking about this notion of the um, uh, how if you spell it out, you know, in language very, very clearly. And I, I, I referred to a, uh, a kind of a Sufi slash fourth way teacher who is very popular in the Bay Area who has some very, very brilliant books on, uh, you know, the relationship of psychology and spiritual growth. I know who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, they're brilliant. I, they, I love to read them. But I also feel like it's such a meticulous description of a process that someone who is a student of this person engaging with that material, I can't see how they couldn't help but impose the cognitive map onto their experiences where and, and I want to contrast that with like uh uh Rob mentioned this uh uh, uh western hermetic teacher RJ Stewart you know his when he teaches uh uh ritual forms and he kind of analogizes them to katas like in karate there's small forms and you learn those and you can put them into bigger rituals when you do that, you know, the, 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 it isn't, there isn't this big prescription about what you're going to experience. It's like, do this and go deep with the experience, you know, just experience it. You find out for yourself what you're going to experience, you know, that, that, the, that it's, it's, it's necessary for the individual practitioner to discover for themselves the content of the practice. And someone can't tell you that. You have to kind of put in the work uh, and deepen and he and that's why he calls it this is why you call it a magical art not a magical science because uh it, it is like music you know yeah. you, you have to you have to keep going you have to uh practice it more and more and, and just kind of form a relationship with the practice and that's that is so different from this uh other writer i i mean to be fair i'm sure in his teaching context and i have some evidence to understand that he probably has more fluidity but in, in the written form it's like it's so it's so crystallized that uh i don't know how there's any room for individual experience at that point except to know whether you're doing it right or not 
Well, the crystallization is very easy to understand. Here is an experience which is hugely valued by the individual. Yeah. And, uh, and it is so profound and, and, and that it's true. And then it so easily makes the slip from the epistemological truth, mm-hmm. which is something that we experience through our in our whole being, to something that is true ontologically. <laughs> well, it, I mean, wait, it's wait. Ir- it's ironic because because what's really being called for are um, individual epistemologies, uh, which which is. A description of what yeah. epistemology Actually, is, I, is is a necessary I, I, component, but but ontology makes these claims for universality. Well, well I, I'm gonna I, I have to throw this in before we go for our break. Oh, <laughs> uh, the philosopher <laughs> speaks well, here. I, I I guess I'm uh, in 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 my uh, uh, late late in life. I'm, I'm becoming more and more of an idealist, and uh, so ex- the Jim ex- is infecting you. Uh, no, I, I I don't think so. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, idealism in the classical sense, which is what it, uh, the phenomenal or the con- the experiential is the real, and that the uh, so-called you know scientific ontological is a conceptual abstraction that's based off of the uh, our the dimensions of our experiential ex- uh, world. And so, yeah. for me, when we speak about the experiential, I think the experiential is true. Ultimately, I think it is what is and true. And you're calling this I- idealism? Yeah, that's. I, I mean, it's called I idealism. Know, this, I mean, is, this sounds awfully like Pyrrho to me, doesn't it? Like, like uh, the, the, the Greek, Greek philosopher. It might Pyrrho. be. I, I don't, I, I'm not familiar. The, the only thing that are real are thoughts, feelings, and sensations. Everything else is a construction. Yeah, mm. that, actually, that, that, construction that, is the wrong word. I just had two but, but conversations. But that, that would be similar. Yeah. That would be similar. I mean, the uh, the um, uh, guy that I've been reading so much of lately, uh, Donald Hoffman, is uh, he calls this conscious realism, and uh, <laughs> that, and he calls it conscious realism because he wants to foreground consciousness. You, you know what? I think that anybody who discusses philosophy should be forbidden to use any Latinate words. Or Greek? Greek's going to pass. I'll get a go. How about uh, no Indo-European derived words? <laughs> I could, I could happily switch to Sanskrit. <laughs> be Sorry, that's Indo-European, Stuart. All right, we need to take... We, uh, that's, that's my point. That's my point. I said I could happily switch to no, Sanskrit. No, no, no. We'll just settle for the Latinate because uh, of its relationship with English. We can come back to that right, right after right. the break. Yeah, okay, well, uh, fortunately, uh, we have to take a break because my head's about to explode. Mine already did. <laughs> oh, I was wondering what that was on the floor. <laughs> All right, well, we have to take a a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week, Rob and I speak in the studio with our good friend Ken McLeod, author of a number of highly regarded books about the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, including Reflections on Silver River, An Arrow to the Heart, and his most recent book, Trackless path. A trackless path. No, you you left the A out. No, no, you took it out. I, I won't go into this, but I have an epistemology here. You actually deleted it. I think that's more appropriate. <laughs> 
Tolkien is working on another book about the Tibetan Vajrayana path and is the founder of Unfettered Mind, an organization featuring an online Dharma teaching repository and resource. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Music on this show is from a CD called Oboe Concertos, whether there are oboes in the concertos or not, by Johann Gottlieb and or Karl Heinrich Graun. Performed by Xenia Loeffler and the Batzdorfer Hofkapelle, this is the Allegro ma non presto movement from the Concerto for Oboe, and this one has oboes in it, uh, in C minor by Johann Christoph Friedrich Fürster, previously attributed to the Graun brothers. So it's, it's oboe but not Graun. I see. <laughs>
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week, Rob and I speak in the studio with our friend Ken McLeod, author of a number of highly regarded books about the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, including Reflections on Silver River, An Arrow to the Heart, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. <laughs> Ken is working on another book about the Tibetan uh, Vajrayana path and is the founder of Unfettered Mind, an organization featuring an online Dharma teaching repository and resource. So in the first hour, we um, had a a wonderful discussion uh, based on this um, article that you circulated on Facebook, but I believe is available on on Unfettered Mind. Uh, No, it's not not on the site. It was a newsletter. I've sent it out on Twitter, too. I probably sh- uh, what I'll do is I'll put it in my blog, so that listeners can uh, access ah, that it. Would be great. And that's um, uh, musings by Ken at blogspot. dot com. Oh, okay, got it. That's great. So, um, uh, but the reason that that I wanted to uh, begin our our conversation today with this piece is precisely because it opened up for me, as I said in the first hour, some of the aspects of uh, Vajrayana practice, which honestly have been opaque to me in, in the past. And, um, and the discussion in the first hour um, f- helped open that further, because I guess, um, and this is something of, of a confession um, by me, that... I guess I had this idea that you had to take on a cosmolo- the, a, a very complicated cosmology to get anything out of Tibetan it's practice. Not, not nearly as complicated as the Ptolemaic cosmology. And I don't know nothing about the Ptolemaic cosmology, so cycles that is with, cycles within cycles. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I, don't know, I, I, but, think, I think the Western materialist cosmology is pretty complicated too. <laughs> uh, well, okay. I mean, I mean, fair enough. But it is. It has been opaque to me. But but I I see. Well, no, I, I want to jump in right here. Okay. <laughs> I'll try to take the astonishment out of my voice. Okay. Why, why do you? Why did you feel you needed to take on the cosmology? I guess because otherwise I felt as if I would be entirely lost in this welter of terms, deities, uh, admonitions, etc. Well, I, 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 I think you have to learn the cosmology mm-hmm. uh, to some extent, you know, broad, sure. at least broad just, just to have some kind of vocabulary. Yeah, because that was the basis of their culture. Sure. But... Taking it on is very different from just learning it. So that's what I'm curious about. What do you mean by taking it on? Believe it as a uh, uh, truth claim? No, I don't think I, I don't think I even uh, mean that. But I guess I just didn't get how the moving parts fit together of what I had heard for over decades now. Uh, people say about their practices within the tradition. I mean, it would be a snippet of this and a snippet yeah. of that. Well, that, that's very understandable because if, you, if you're just getting little snapshots, mm-hmm. then, uh, well, let, let's take something uh, 
that's uh, very straightforward, we think, in our culture. Take uh, baseball. Mm. And if you just took a few snapshots and tried to explain baseball to somebody, you'd have a very difficult time. It's true. Uh, you know, but when you see the whole game, then you can sort of sort it out. But there's a hilarious uh, poem that was written by a French-Canadian uh, poet about a baseball thing. They you know, one ball, two ball, three ball, four ball. I don't know. I only see one ball. <laughs> <laughs> But but I think this is uh, the whenever we encounter a complex system, we we can't. Uh, but I think this is a Western thing: is that, oh, I can just take this part, this part, and I understand it. No, that's not true at all. Any complex system, you have to you have to under, you have to get the whole thing. Otherwise, you don't understand it. And I and I get it. And and I guess you know. I've had a, I've had the same response to as aspects of Japanese culture, for example. Yes. You know, if if you don't if you don't jump in, you're not going to be able to get the feel uh, of how the, how the various moving parts articulate with each other. Right, and 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 some things will seem completely objectionable to you because they differ from our culture. Right. But when you immerse yourself in the culture or you learn how the culture actually works, you can see that while that part balances over here, then something else which we don't handle at all well in mm -hmm. our culture is handled very beautifully in in another culture. And you see, oh, okay, so they have a different way of doing things. But right. But I, I, the point I'm making is that is that this piece of yours helped me grasp at a at a more visceral level mostly because you're talking about body practices as opposed to stuff that sounded off you know the the Buddhist philosophy can be awfully abstract. Well yes we and we need to differentiate between Buddhist philosophy mm -hmm. and the practices. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that's what and and that's why um I'm very much looking forward to this book that you're writing. No pressure here. I, <laughs> <laughs> I have high okay, expectations so, of you, Ken. Right. Okay, so I, 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 I don't think we bother going to AG more because it's just not going to fit in now. All right. <laughs> so where do you want to go? Well, um, there's another whole topic, topical area that I wanted to open mm -hmm. up, which was um, your, admin, your suggestion or question to me. I can't remember when, the, when you first posed it a few weeks ago, perhaps, and then again more recently. Um, you asked me, had I seen this new movie out now with Anthony Hopkins, and I forget the other star's name, about uh, entitled "The Two Popes," yeah. and it's about and it's about the um, uh, Bergoglio, relationship of yeah. Cardinal Bergoglio, who became Pope Francis, right. to his um, now Pope Emeritus. Uh, predecessor, yeah. um, uh, the uh, German Shepherd, as he's was uh, has been sometimes yeah, car called he, he, Cardinal Ratzinger, Ratzinger before his elevation, before so Benedict, it be Benedict, became Pope yeah. Benedict, and and um, and I was curious uh, about um, why you'd asked, and just in the in the break here, I, I got the clarification that it wasn't because of my deep. Um, Immersion in uh, Roman Catholic uh, theology, practice, etc., as a kid, but rather something else. So I'm curious what some of those, at least 
one or two of those something else's because my I'll just I'll just before you jump in I'll just say that I had a lot of different responses to this film. Well, I'm very interested to hear those responses. Okay. Uh I did too. Uh and that's basically why I uh asked if you had seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh I'd I'd heard about the movie then two people I know um one of them who has a Catholic background as well, mm-hmm. um, both strongly encouraged me to watch it. Mm-hmm. So I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought the movie was very well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought the uh, the acting uh, and the writing uh, and how it was constructed was all all of that, I thought, was, uh, was very well done. Mm-hmm. But I, I came away from the movie with... Uh, A number of conflicting uh, impressions. Same here. Uh, Do you want me to go first? Do you want to go first? No, you go first. Overall, I I would describe the movie as more humanistic than spiritual. That's interesting. Tell, explain what you mean by that. Well, it's a these two figures who've you know this is late in their careers. They're very senior, and uh, they've both gone through a lot. We have a bit more knowledge about Pope Francis, what he went through than uh, Pope Benedict. You mean presented in the movie? Presented in the more, movie. More than, more than a little. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a yeah. vast disproportion there in the yeah. movie. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the... Uh, But Benedict has been uh, Pope Benedict has been moved to call upon Pope, uh, Francis or Bergoglio, Cardinal Bergoglio, Cardinal Bergoglio, for reasons that he has been loath to admit to himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, so there's a very human relationship which is played out in quite a wonderful way. Mm-hmm. Into this human relationship, you see the uh, the way. The, the tradition of their training operates hmm. or comes in to mediate the transitions that take place. And I think that's actually quite touching. I'm particularly uh, referring in particular to the scene in which they um, both serve as each other's confessor ah, yes. and give each other absolution. Yes. And this is so. This is utterly in keeping with the tradition of confession, and and that ritual has immense personal meaning for both men in this yes. movie. Yeah, and yeah. so, so that's what I mean about the spiritual coming into the human. Mm-hmm. But the impression that I got is that the the way that they've lived their lives is basically as. Uh, and this may be very unkind on my part, and I don't mean it unkindly, but uh, as uh, humanitarians mm-hmm. who have a the backing of a theology which informs their humanitarian uh, approach to life, they differ quite profoundly on what that should look like, and that's one of the tensions in the movie. The There are two other things which stood out for me. One is... Uh, the movie represents something that I think is very, very much needed in today's world, and that is the possibility of forgiveness. Or I would put it reconciliation. 
in a kind of in a in in terms of yes. two okay. two. Yeah. I mean, you may not have the 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 Catholic background, I but but these but but they rep these two figures represent. Um, Philosophical factions, if you will, but but I, I meant this forgiveness in this in what Pope Francis makes a terrible mistake with respect to the people he's responsible for. Oh, oh, I see. And right. one of them is able to uh, he's able to be reconciled yes. with one. I think actually reconciliation is probably the better word to use. Okay. So that that was another. Uh, but when I see the harshness with which people. Uh, with, with society treats people who step even a small bit out of line these days. Ah, uh, th- 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 that uh, that seems to me a very important uh, piece in the movie, uh, and which I found actually quite touching and quite quite remarkable that that, that was actually possible. The third, uh, and this is the third element, and this is where I say there's some conflict in the impressions I took away is that. Towards the end, both of them have a kind of grudging acceptance that larger forces were at work in bringing them together. Hmm. And that's about the only place the spiritual actually enters the movie. Mm-hmm. So those are my thoughts. Well, I, I, I want to, I, I feel moved to uh, uh, go to this reconciliation that you're talking about. It's it's the... Uh, it, it occurs during during um, depictions of the the much earlier background in the life of uh, Cardinal Bergoglio, yeah. um, who's in the present time in the in the narrative of the movie. Um, in other words, depicting uh, these formative events that he has not uh, reconciled himself to, and. And that, that and that are difficult to reconcile would be difficult for anyone to reconcile. In other words, uh, you know, uh, not to go into all the details, but there was a, a coup in Argentina, in, or or some kind of replacement of no, it's Argentina. Okay. That's where he's from. Um, That's right. And um, and there are there's a you know I I don't know. I don't know the details of the politics at all for Argentina. Well, he he felt he could he could serve his people best by uh, interacting with the dictatorship. Right. He was he was head of the Jesuit order in Argentina, yeah. and and uh, and this this comes at, at a time in the 70s and 80s when a sort when a kind of um, and I'm forgetting the the term here, but um, it's just eluding my tongue at the moment, but it, the, it was a, a uh, understood to be a theology, which um, liberation theology. Liberation theology. Thank you. Um, which is concerned with the the plight of underclasses, essentially, in society or the poor. That uh, this was an essential part of the Christian mission. Right. Uh, right. And that was ministry. and that was very and that was very controversial. Yes. Um, and especially when people came into power, author- authoritarian figures came into power uh, politically in Argentina who um, 
were very much who would be inconvenienced by by this uh, idea having having currency because it was and and it's depicted in the movie I think fairly fairly clearly it was, that it was that controversial within the Catholic Church it was controversial within the Catholic Church because there are the people who would comp, who would be sim- even sympathetic to the authoritarian figures mm-hmm. and also um, feared contamination by Marxists, Marxist ideology, um, and yet um, there's the, on the other side um, the strong arguments that can, that can be made that uh, uh, Christianity emerged from the poor and ought to not abandon the poor. Well, the, this is very much expressed in Christ's life. Right. Right, exactly, and for the for the first couple of centuries of uh, um, you know it spread throughout. It was it was the slaves and 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 um, you know uh, servants who mostly spread um, Christianity. So so anyway, that's the that's that context. And then in Argentina, we see we see uh, Bergoglio trying to th- trying to wend his way as skillfully as he can between these two factions within his Jesuit order, within the church more generally, um, and um, uh, and not find himself thrown into prison or or worse, as as people were disappeared. Yes. I mean that's that's. Um, uh, uh, quite clear, so so that's all depicted. I, I agree with you that that's. Uh, I was actually surprised that it was depicted with as much um, heartfelt clarity as it was. And and your point about the reconciliation with two. There's two priests who that were um, that did not obey uh, Bergoglio's orders to them. To leave aside the liberation theology approach, and they were imprisoned, and um, the and, reconciliation and, and tortured and tortured, and um, reconciliation you mentioned is with one of one of those priests in later years, and the not the lack of or absence of forgiveness was the other one. Yes, and 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 that's all actually beautifully done, I and, think, and I, important. I, yes, I agree. Um, the 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 thing that I missed, given my um, background in Catholicism, perhaps, is why you you get at the very beginning of the movie you 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 hear um, Pope Benedict, played by Anthony Hopkins, uh, called a Nazi or or uh, uh, I mean someone literally uh, says that. Um, this is just somebody in the street, you know. Um, and but there are a few a, a few moments where you get this idea that that he's this uh, German authoritarian who's who's doing things. But you don't hear anything more about this. You don't know the dimension, the dimensions of his of his pastoral life. That's, uh, that's as, true. As a priest. Though, though he is portrayed right from the very beginning as a very astute and ambitious politician. That's true. That's true. Um, and um, um, anyway, that was, an, that was, that was something that, that I thought the movie... It was unba- would, unbalanced. It was it. unbalanced, and it was unbalanced because then the, um, the coming together of these two figures from 
with different political uh, moral philosophies, I guess, um, uh, that the movie po- portrays, it didn't. It didn't have the richness of the dimension that I think it could have had. It's, um, it's interesting because uh, one of the people that recommended I watch it. Uh, mm-hmm. I felt exactly the same way that you did. I I didn't to the same extent mm-hmm. because uh, it was fairly clear to me the kind of person Ratzinger was. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and the rigidity which went into him. I, I will give give the movie credit that that um, Hopkins' portrayal and the and the script uh, mm-hmm. that he you know was given to uh, to uh, use for that. Um, did demonstrate that in um, personal terms. Yes. I mean, you, I yeah. mean, you, you see him, you see the actor doing doing that quite well, and you see also a um, a quite uh, deliberate and even grudging at times um, loosening of of that yes. attitude. And nevertheless, I think. Um, nevertheless, I think. I think it would have meant more to have a little bit more of the background um, like that that you had with, um, because because these are figures who had who had immense influence on people's lives. Yes, I think to be specific, and I, I, I agree with you. To be specific, I mean Ratzinger is portrayed as someone who shut himself down to life. That's right. And it would have been very helpful to have had some scene from earlier in his life where he shut himself down to life. I completely... I mean, that that's basically the point, the point I made. I think it would then have meant more. His confession would have... His confession is beautiful, don't get me wrong, as as portrayed in the movie. It is because we we have come to see him as someone who's trying to let go of this attitude of shut, having shut down to life. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I, but spo- I suppose I didn't need that because I I know that experience myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then. Fair enough. <laughs> but, um, uh, uh, and, and so to that, uh, to that extent, uh, uh, the emotional core of the movie moved me but not as much as i could imagine having been moved okay. and and then i was i was it's funny because i was touched uh, by the what by, touched you well the um the, uh, the friendship at the very end at the very end of the movie so uh, they have a couple i think it's a couple of scenes of the real pope francis and the real pope benedict emeritus um, when they're watching the soccer match? No, no, no. Uh, um, that's that's still the actors there. Yeah. No, they, they oh, actually that's right. yes, yes, they, yes, sh- they show them joking. coming coming together, and and absolutely in those shots, both of them look absolutely delighted to see one another. Yeah, there's a real warmth there. There's yes, a yeah. there's a genuine warmth, yeah. which is appropriate um, uh, because uh, because the the immediate the previous scenes have have. Uh, have shown the reason why that could be true. And in light of recent developments, one wonders what this relationship is now. Well, yes. I mean, of course, you're referring to to the controversy that um, I forget who the cardinal is 
from some European country who's just written a book about priestly celibacy, and he was using um, supposedly a uh, I passage. It, I thought it was Benedict who wrote the book. No. Actually, it's not Benedict who wrote the book, that, and that's part of the controversy. Actually, that I, I'm as I say, I'm forgetting the identity of. of so of, it wasn't okay. So so supposedly, this cardinal claims he incorporated a passage of Benedict's writings ah. into the book. And and there. And what does it say, or what is it? Well, well basically, the book the book is is a rejection of the idea which Pope Francis is. Apparently, moving the the, just, the hierarchy just a little bit, just a little bit, just a little bit. He's he's wanting to um, allow for married priests uh, in remote areas of the Amazon, where right where uh, celibate priests would be unable to function or get to essentially, and um, not that they have a surplus of priests at all anyway. <laughs> but um, but anyway, so 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 of course the conservative faction in the church thinks of this as, you know, heresy. And this um, this particular conservative wrote this book, incorporated a passage oh, supposedly by okay. Benedict, and and so there's been to and fro about it. Got it. So... Um, Thank you for that clarification. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, um, it's complicated, and, and I don't even know exactly what to believe, whether Benedict actually wrote this particular passage or not, because all the all the denials and counter-denials, etc., are complicated. So, going back to the movie, what do you think uh, in response to my suggestion that it was mainly humanitarian rather than spiritual? I absolutely agree. Uh, it's... Um, I was going to say, you could, you could recast the movie almost as... Um, a uh, reconciliation movie between I don't know I'm thinking like uh, Steve Jobs and his successor at Apple and then of course Jobs came back later um, yeah, okay. but you know something well, yes, like that well the uh, the reason I want to uh, one of the reasons that I encourage you to, to see it uh, is because <laughs> I think the movie it, it, we both agree that it was more humanitarian than spiritual but this means that the the established religion in the West has largely become more humanitarian than spiritual and I and I that's my experience of, of the Catholic Church Pace my own experience as a very young child in a Roman Catholic church having a, uh, an experience of, of uh, you know, what, what my friend, uh, our friend, mutual friend Jim Wilson would call grace. Uh, yeah. So, so the question for me is, okay, if things have, I mean, I think a lot of people went into Buddhism and other Asian religions precisely because the they did not feel a um, the spiritual in the church in in the religions of their own training mm -hmm. right and yet at the same time as, and I think I can say that I was one of those mm -hmm. uh, 
but now we see uh, what's happening in, in Buddhism, at least, uh, is that there's been a, a, an assertion of the humanitarian to the point of excluding the spiritual. Again, uh, to, to, uh, when you say excluding the spiritual, can you give an example of that? Uh, that might well, I, I, I think. Uh, uh, the idea of uh, that bodhicitta is uh, just about altruism. Okay, I mean, it's certain, certainly, certainly, uh, what is what is it? Engaged Buddhism, um, uh, it seems to me, is an example of what you're talking about. Uh, yes, as well. uh, and uh, and it is. I mean, there's a paper I recently read which gives a very very thorough refutation that engaged Buddhism. Uh, it says that disengaged Buddhism has been the role for the last few centuries, uh, <laughs> and, and engaged Buddhism is uh, if engaged Buddhism doesn't take into account this history and the doctrine on which it's based, you know, mm -hmm. the teachings which are based for, you know, for basically 2,000 years, then uh, what claim do they have that they represent the actual Buddhist tradition? That's interesting. Uh, I mean, the, the other the other piece is the ingress of psychology into uh, Buddhism in the Western context, or Buddhism into psychology. Uh, yeah, which I think is part of the, uh, a related phenomenon, definitely. But, but I think your point, I mean, I, I suspect that, that you're wanting to explore the, 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 you know, so what happened to Christianity, not just Roman the Roman Catholic version, which is this the subject of the movie, but here are the, here are here are people who are. I mean, Cardinal Bergoglio is is portrayed as a morally complicated, or ethically complicated person, who, in the end, we have sympathy for his project, and um, and yet his project doesn't have any element of um, the spiritual, as I as I would under you know. I, I guess I, I don't want to say, say it quite as baldly as that, but it lacks a focus towards the spiritual, it seems to well, me. I mean, this, this all begs the question of what, what we are construing in this, in this conversation as the spiritual. Oh, uh, a relationship with life that does not depend on the conceptual mind. Okay. That's. I'm. I'm perfectly happy to go with that. Yeah. In, that, a, in that, our remaining few minutes, that's for sure. Okay. Yeah, I think that works. I mean, that that, that draws the distinction fairly well. I think. Yeah. Uh, Sorry about relegating your reason, your cherished reason. Well, I, you don't. <laughs> you would have to tease me out for uh, more time than we have on what I mean by reason, because reason <laughs> functions without the conceptual. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we're not going down. <laughs> but the, that doesn't but, ring true to you, huh? But the point is that, is that, I mean, to get back to the movie, The Two Popes, um, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm scouring my memory, and I'm trying to think of a moment when there's any oh, sense right, of the transcendent. Right at the end, when uh, Benedict is saying to... Uh, uh, Francis, mm -hmm. you know, you got on a plane before you got my letter. Oh, right. Okay, that's uh, true. And and you know and and so you know how did that happen? How did that happen? 
you know, there yes. are larger forces at work. This is the only part of the movie where yeah. they seem to acknowledge God's presence, that God's act, um, the power of God's presence in their lives. I agree. I agree with you. And and, um, and the rest. Of uh, and I should qualify that. Uh, add the only other place is when they're actually giving each other uh, absolution. Confession. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because uh, not to no at the well, end of the confession. No, no, no. I, I, abs- no, no. Because there they're trusting that through performing the ritual, God's power is being transmitted. Well, and and and. Uh, that's precisely right, and the actors do a good job of actually um, creating that impression in yes, the viewer, yeah, yeah. and that's um, and that is and that is remarkable actually because um, and it's not a saccharine. That, I mean that, and that's, that's, that's the key exactly. That's yes. the key virtue of the movie to me is that those absolutions were not saccharine. No, they were not treacly. You know, 1940s Bing Crosby. Uh, priest no, you could almost thing. feel the the weight being taken off. It's true. Their, their, that is their, their, a, their, mm. and that's and yeah. that's and why that goes back to what I was talking about in the first part of the yes. show. For it's physical, and and when you yes. receive absolution uh, that way, or when when you're actually able to face what is true, even if it's very very difficult, mm-hmm. then body and mind relax. And you actually see that in the movie, and that's that and that happens. is spiritual. You're 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 absolutely right. I'm glad I'm glad you uh, pointed that out because because I did like the movie, and I would recommend people see it, um, even even with some caveats that I've already articulated. But um, but those that feature of the of the movie um, sets it apart from other characterizations yes. in movies of, yeah. of uh, the religious. I mean, I, I I don't go to a lot of movies that I can that are um, whose publicity campaign asserts that they're religious or spiritual, because mostly these days the ones I have gone to seem to use the forum to debunk the possibility of of transcendence <laughs> and. Um, uh, and to the extent that we're talking about here, this one, this movie does not. No, I agree. So, so you know, kudos and credits to the um, movie makers. I agree. Mm-hmm. So, Stuart, do you have anything, any other uh, perspective from your um, your Protestant? My Protestant uh, pagan past. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, nothing to inform. I mean, I, I'm I've, I'm just uh, chewing on the uh, definition of the spiritual that Ken offered, and um, kind of testing that against you know some of the like modern forms of American Buddhism that tend to be more atheistic or, or agnostic. Uh, yeah, or ag- agnostic is probably more fair. And <clears throat> but I I see these. I mean, I, I'm probably going to get myself into all kinds of trouble. I, I think what the movie reminded me of, and I hadn't really thought of that until this conversation, so I'm very grateful for this conversation, is that um, the the extent to which Western practitioners are seeking to take the magic and the spiritual out of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and it's, it's, it's part of a common... 
project because it's already the it, it, the same project has already been accomplished in large part in in, the Christ, in the Christian tradition. Yeah, but you know it's, it's interesting. And perhaps Judaism as well. I don't well, know. The, 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 the problem is that when you try to do that, then the only forms which retain the spiritual uh, tend to be extremely conservative, fundamentalist, or something like that, and those are problematic and for totally yeah. different well, reasons. Partly okay. because I'm not, I'm not sure they rise to the level of the description that uh, you raise about. I mean, it's not it's not it's not that within even a conservative religious context you, there isn't room for spiritual experience. It's just that when one has a spiritual experience, the overlay when one returns back to, let's say, the uh, ordinary realm, the overlay and the interpretative structure yeah. that's laid on that is is not conducive to a reliable return to that place. And that's that's a... That's the problem with that kind of thing. I mean, I, the, religions can be wonderful containers for the spiritual, and they can get in the way um, quite a bit. And that's the uh, yes, because the doctrine is uh, carved in stone. But but, but that, see, that's the yeah. cl- that would be the claim of a uh, secular, quote unquote, secular Buddhist. If I you know, and I I think of people like uh, uh, Sam Harris, who's you know promoting meditation has got a meditation app and and actually engaged in conversations with lots of a range of meditation teachers and yet you know has, his project is to relu- to remove the religiosity out of like say buddhism or out of uh, religion and and i think the claim is that you can have a spiritual experience without this without a uh, container that distorts that experience when you, as it were, come back to Earth. Yes, but not having a container also distorts the experience. That, and that's an interesting point. Unfortunately, we're gonna, we don't have time to really unpack that as much as I would like to, because I think that's a good oh, we've, got, we've got ten minutes. Yeah, What's wrong? yeah. yeah we've got, we got, we got maybe five minutes. We've got maybe five minutes. <laughs> but uh, but, but, uh, but uh, we'll, do, we'll do as much justice as we can, because I think it is an interesting claim that if you don't have, I mean, this the, I, the way I would interpret that is partly what we were talking about with some of the visualization practices. The mythic, the imaginal, has real power on our emotional selves and our beings uh, in a non-conceptual way that I think you lose and you jettison if you construe a totally rationalistic uh, 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 well, if spiritual. You, if you, a, a totally rationalistic spiritual cannot rise above the conceptual. I, I, see, I don't, I don't know. See, the, this is the problem I have. Is I, ration, I don't construe rational as... as uh, r- rational does not mean to me conceptual. Rational can mean the container is rational. Uh, what does rational mean if it is not conceptual? It, it, what I mean is that the container can be rational and still permit for a spiritual experience. Oh, I don't have any problem with that. But and, and and so then when you so the question to me is: Does the rational container preclude access to qualities and types of uh, mystical experience that one might more readily find in a more mythological container? Not necessarily, but if the practice is only approached on rational terms, then yes. 
Mm, I this is what I struggle with because I it, to me I can have a very rational, you know, clear, open model of even the deity practice that we're talking about, <laughs> and and it doesn't necessarily and it, I don't see that as in and of itself as a barrier to the function of the rational in this mystical context is to demonstrate the limits of the rational and put you at the place where you have to let go of it. Yes. And, 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 and you know, Zen koans, a lot of the pointing out instructions, Tibetan tradition, and I'm sure there are comparable practices in other traditions, that is ex exactly what they do. They use the rational right. to bring you to the point that you have to let go of it. I would, but I would, I would add one more. That the I would say that the function of the rational in a spiritual context is injunctive to provide the practices and the things that one does, such that one can enter into the mystical. I don't have any problem with that. And so that's 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 when I think. You know, when I talk about uh, mystical positivism, that's really what I think about mystical yeah, no, positivism. That, uh, yeah. that that, that yeah. it's like the positivism part is is clear injunctive direction to allow oneself access to the mystical and is yeah but I, th I think it goes further than that in the way that I described yeah I mean I, I think you that is part of it I think that in, in fact I would say that the, those kinds of devices are ways in which yeah. we uh, uh, in, mean, enter into the mystical right. because we in a different context it's I, I think what I think we're just touching on here is uh, the the use of form? You, you, you need a form in order to be able to um, travel a path. I'm mixing metaphors like crazy here, so please excuse me. Uh, and a lot of people just say, "No, I just want to do it my way." But my way usually turns out to be no way, right. and uh, and people reject the traditional ways because they want to do it my way. Uh, Whereas what what historically what has been shown is that you train in a form and you develop skills and abilities and understanding that and when you've trained d deeply enough in that then you will find out how to pursue what you're looking for using those tools but that's going to be a very individual process yes. and then we end up where we were at the uh, in the first part of this conversation where the uh, uh, deep individuality of mystical experience. Perfect place. I'll, I will give you the last word there. <laughs> so kind of you. <laughs> Obviously a concession. <laughs> it is. Much as it pains me. Uh, yes, well, he's going to come back and get me later. <laughs> no doubt. You've been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week, Rob and I have been speaking uh, with our friend Ken McLeod, author of a number of highly regarded books about the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, including Reflections on Silver River, An Arrow to the Heart, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Ken is working on another book about the Tibetan Vajrayana... Um, uh, hold on. Uh, Next uh, page. No. Uh, you can have... I'll give it to you in a second. Um, anyway. <laughs> unfettered mind. 
an organization featuring online dharma, teaching, repository, and resource. Next week on the Mystical Positives, we feature a conversation to be pre-recorded on February 2nd with Stephen Aronson, fourth-way group leader, writer, and retired psychologist. Stephen received a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of Connecticut in 1970. He taught an, as assistant professor of psychology in the early 70s at Arizona State Uni and Alfred University. He also served uh, on staff at the hospitals in Phoenix and Maine. In 1982, Stephen experienced a vision that was an overture to a series of synchronous events culminating in his discovery of the Gurdjieff work. He has dedicated his inner search to the methods of G.I. Gurdjieff since that time, accepting the responsibilities of leading groups and studying the system. Steve's immersion in spiritual psychology led him to an interest in esoteric religion, particularly esoteric Christianity, and a recognition of the universality of the core of all traditions. It also profoundly influenced his understanding of the structure and function of the human psyche and his practice of clinical psychology. He has made a number of presentations to the All and Everything International Humanities Conferences and participates in groups in Portland, Maine, Moscow, Ru Russia, and Toronto, Canada. Tune in for that show on uh, Saturday, February 8th from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, The Magic of Witchcraft. Come learn about the magic of manifestation and the foundation of magic as a lifestyle and spiritual practice. You'll learn what magic, wicca, and witchcraft are and what they are not. You'll learn about the different paths of this earth spirituality, sacred holidays, and how living a life attuned to the natural cycles improves your presence of mind, balance of productivity, and rest, spiritual and balance of productivity and rest and spiritual journey. Sorry about that. Jamie Della has studied magic and spirituality from around the world for more than 20 years. As a practitioner of healing arts, she leads workshops and ritual retreats on earth-based spirituality. She's the author of the Herbal Journeys column in Witches and Pagans magazine, has several published essays, and not, has published nine books, including the recently released The Book of Spells, The Magic of Witchcraft. That's at Many Rivers Books and Tea this Thursday. Thursday, February 6th at 7.30 p.m. On Friday, February 7th at Many Rivers, as part of the ongoing class that began in January, Angels the Native Way with Native Californian healer Trina Vega. Fridays, 7.15 to 9.15 p.m. Next one, February 7th. Trina writes, I have experienced angels in my entire life of a short journey on Earth of 62 years. I'll assist you in linking with and hearing your own angels. Come join us in really getting to know your angels, spirit guides, and guardian angels. I will also include hearing from past loved ones. Let's start off the new year with the opening to the spiritual native realm of angels. Many blessings, Trina Vega. She's a Native American healer who practices a diverse menu of healings from Native Grandmother Ocean to Healing with the Angels. She's an intuitive reader and has practiced and offered readings for 30-plus years. She's the youthful and energetic grandmother to 18 grandchildren. And on Wednesday, February 5th, Follow Your Dread to the Mystical Heart. That's with the Taiyu Meditation Center staff, uh, including yours truly and Rob at Mini Rivers Books and Tea. That's Wednesday evening, our uh, monthly open meditation session. That's 7.30 p.m. Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedbacks feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. You can't speak either. <laughs>
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Join us again on Saturday, <laughs> next Saturday. Uh, we leave you with music from a CD called Oboe Concertos by Johann Gottlieb and or Karl Heinrich Graun, performed by Xenia Loeffler and the Batzdorfer Hofkapelle. This is the Sicil- Sicilia- <laughs> Siciliano movement from the Concerto for Oboe in C minor by Johann Christoph Friedrich Fürster, Previously attributed to one of the Ground brothers. Enjoy. (laughs) 